Charting a course for sustainable space, this is Space to Grow, an Astro Scale and Market Scale podcast with your hosts, Chris Blackerby and Charity Whedon. Hey everyone, this is Chris Blackerby, Astro Scale COO, coming to you from Tokyo, Japan. Welcome to Space to Grow. As you all know by now, I'm sure we are a podcast focused on all those factors that are going to make the space economy grow from the technology to societal interest, finance, policy, government, and commercial interaction. It is a vibrant world out there. Uh, I'm here as always with Charity Whedon. Hey, Charity. Hey, Chris. And Charity, as usual, is coming to us from spring-like DC right now. Uh, We had uh, an incredibly cool conversation just now, which I know everyone is going to really enjoy. Um, Charity, that was such an open, honest discussion about uh, life and space sustainability and the future. It was really cool, no? It was it was powerful, and I, I know we're keeping our our audience in suspense on who we were talking to. So uh, <laughs> I'm happy to <laughs> let, to let you know that we we were so honored to have Professor Mariba Ja as a guest on Space to Grow today. Yeah, and Charity and I both know him well from a variety of conferences and things. Uh, but for those who know him. You know that this is going to be a, a fun, interesting conversation that touches on a variety of areas. And for those who don't, you're in for a treat, uh, as this is someone who has just such a cool insight onto space and sustainability and society overall. So, um, you know, Charity, his, his background is pretty incredible. Absolutely incredible and diverse. He is an associate professor of aerospace engineering and engineering mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. He previously worked as a spacecraft navigator at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where he was a navigator for the Mars Global Surveyor, Mars Odyssey, Mars Express, Mars Exploration Rover, and his last mission was the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. He's also a fellow of the American Astronautical Society, the Air Force Research Laboratory, the International Association for the Advancement of Space Safety, and the Royal Astronomical Society. Mariba was selected into the 10th anniversary class of TED Fellows as well, and he was selected into the AIWA class of fellows and honorary fellows in the year of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. As usual, our guests completely outshining anything <laughs> that my bio would be, but hey, that's what we want, right? That's the whole goal is to mm-hmm. talk to these smart, accomplished people. And for all of that time he spent on Mars back at JPL, He's most known now for all of his work on space sustainability uh, and interdisciplinary aspects of, uh, of space and society that he focuses on at University of Texas. And a lot of the uh, side, side work he does off of that is focused on space debris and sustainability and understanding our orbits. Uh, so he, he really touches on a variety of aspects of um, space exploration and utilization. And did you know he got his master's and PhD in aerospace engineering sciences from no other than CU Boulder, close to our oh, yeah. Astroscale US office in Denver. Shout out to Colorado, our team there in the US. It's a very cool conversation um, and uh, I, I know everyone's gonna enjoy it. So stay tuned and here is Morbija. Morbija, welcome to Space to Grow. Uh, it is great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. 
And uh, Cherry and I have been on a variety of panels with you over the last year in this uh, COVID era, but we've always you've always been high on our list to, to join us on this. <laughs> so thanks for thanks for taking the time to to step on with us. I appreciate it. And you, uh, you know, you you have a transdisciplinary program uh, program at UT on safe space safety, sustainability, security. That's basically what we're all about at AstroScale. So, um, just to kick it off, can you tell us a bit about what you're focused on at um, at, at UT at Austin? Like, are, are most of your students aerospace engineers, environmental? Do you get a bunch of different disciplines in there? Yeah. So, so uh, that's a great question. I mean, when I first started off, it was uniquely aerospace engineering students. And then, um, you know, UT has this Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law. And I approached the director, Bobby Chesney, and I said, hey, what if we could have like a space security and safety program under under the Strauss Center? He, he said yes. And so using that, um, I've, I've gotten some uh, what are called Brumley Fellows. So typically uh, graduate students in uh, we have the, the, the Lyndon B. Johnson um, uh, policy um, program here at UT. So I get some students from policy, some students from UT law. Um, most of my Brumley fellows have been law students uh, here at UT that I've uh, advised and mentored and uh, gotten them to do things at like uh, uh, Wilton Park and these sorts of events and even the UN nice. and stuff like that. So, so yeah, so I've, I've done that and I've extended – um, I've extended my reach to like environmental sciences focused on like ecological sustainability and how we can use that to try to interpret what we could use in space for space sustainability and things like that. So I've really gone way out of bounds of uh, aerospace engineering. And that was the whole reason I chose UT is because I wanted to do such a thing and I saw the University of Texas at Austin as a place where I might be able to do something like that. And um, right now it's pretty fractionated, uh, meaning that that I'm different people in different places. But the goal really is to, uh, um, you know, unify this under kind of like a Hogwarts, uh, Hogwarts of, of, of space safety, security, and sustainability. I call it Space S Cubed. And um I want UT to be like the Hogwarts of Space S Cubed and try to develop kind of this transdisciplinary program where, um, you know, law students can get a glimpse into what it means to track satellites with telescopes and aerospace students, um, you know, get policy stuff. And I can tell you that there's a real hunger from the students. They don't want to be pigeonholed into single discipline kind of stuff. So so the thing is, I'm I'm all about crossing disciplinary boundaries, but the students themselves that I'm seeing coming through my classrooms are all about, hey, listen, um, I don't want to just be an astrodynamicist. Like, I want to know how does my work affect people writing policies and regulations and stuff like that. So I see more and more of that, um, you know, prevalent in, in the students. So that, that to me, that's like a, a signal that's telling me something. That's so cool, man. And, and you know, you, you, you cross over to that with the Vox Populi. I was... Uh... Checking out. So, for those who don't know, Morba has a uh, podcast, video cast called Vox Populi, which our own Charity Whedon was on a couple months ago, right? I was very nervous. It was an awesome, <laughs> awesome discussion, by the way. It's such a cool one. But I, and I was checking out, this isn't the one that Charity was on, but I was watching one the other day out of yours on, uh, on the religion one connecting the episode of morals and values as it's connected to religion and space safety. And, and so bringing in that as another discipline 
Uh, it was a fascinating conversation, by the way, on religion and space exploration. But I assume you're trying to to cross over as well from the from the UT stuff you're doing with the students to the Vox Populi, um, the same kind of thing, bringing in thing and, and something as, as, as different as, as religion into the conversation as well. Um, I assume that's your, your method or your, your goal for the podcast. Well, well, so here's, here's the thing, right? It's like, um, I think it was, it was back in 2015 when, um, I took a trip to Alaska and I had a very intimate personal experience, uh, in Alaska. I took my son Denali with me. And so that he could see where his name came from kind of thing. And, um, I, I, I just saw a big disparity between natives and everybody else. And, and, uh, um, man, it's like downtown Anchorage seeing stores lined on both sides with like, uh, you know, furs for scale, you know, for sale and these sorts of things. And, um, I felt, I felt broken and I had an inner experience where, this whole idea of environmentalism and being stewards and custodians uh, of life and all this other stuff versus owners really hit home. And I think that's when I become, became like this whole idea of, of space environmentalists. And I realized at that point that I needed to do more than just talk to space people. And um, in, in 2019, when I became a TED fellow, that five minute TED talk, has gotten almost 2000 views, uh, sorry, not 2000, 2 million views. And, and the thing is, it's like, you know, if I had to sum up all the people that I've reached going to space congresses and symposia, I probably don't even reach 10% of that. And so what it made me realize is that the majority of humanity is not enrolled in this vision of space sustainability or even space exploration. And we space people tend to be, uh, you know, in general, pretty insular, a bit elitist about this stuff, uh, very messianic in terms of, you know, the Elon followers and the blah, 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 right? And it's like, I realized that I needed to connect to people outside of space, just regular folks, and that they're smart and they can get it, and I don't have to speak pejoratively to them, and I can talk to them in terms that they can understand and Vox Populi is part of that. And, and this idea of having conversations that can bring people together, just like with, you know, religion and theology, right? I mean, to, to think that our behaviors are mutually exclusive from what we believe in our faith is like stupid. Like that's a dumb, that, that doesn't even make sense. So why aren't we having these conversations? And it's because people feel uncomfortable about it to a great extent. People feel, oh, well, we don't want to talk about that because, you know, that could get kind of controversial and blah, blah, blah. But it, one of the things I've realized is that we shouldn't fear discomfort and actually growth comes from sitting in discomfort. I'm taking, you know, kind of cues from when you said talking about space is elitist and I feel that like, you know, the public, the larger public, they rely on space. This is their lifeline for many folks, especially in the Arctic. I mean, you're in the Arctic. They wholly rely on satellites uh, for a, a variety of services. And so it, you know, it's incumbent on us who are on the inside to actually get out there and talk about this you know, in a clear manner. Um, so I, I just want to, you know, clearly you are shaping young minds to think more broadly and opening up the scope of 
what it means to be, you know, we're all space explorers in a way for that matter. But I'd love to hear from you, Mariva, what were your major points in your life that shaped who you are before you took Denali on that trip? Who are the people that influenced you and put you on this path? Yeah, so um, I, so I'm going to have to go back to um, my time in Venezuela at a at a military boarding school and um, being being hazed, uh, made to stand uh, at attention in in the dri- you know on the drill pad um, from from nine p.m. to five in the morning and and watching the sky and. Um, there were countless nights where I saw the sun set and rise uh, and looking at the stars go above me. And I think, so that was like, there was a seed planted there. Um, when I graduated from military school, I came back to the United States. I enlisted uh, in the Air Force and I was a, a, a security policeman. I was a cop. And... Um, I was sent to Montana to guard uh, Minuteman Two, Minuteman Three uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And during my night shifts, even though I had that experience at military school in, in Venezuela, I'd never been in a place with with skies so dark in my life as Montana. And I got it. I I was um, I was so moved by being able to see so many stars in the Milky Way and all this stuff. And it's like, now I, I felt connected to our, uh, to our ancestors. Uh, I felt connected to all the people that came like thousands of years before, before us. It's like, well, before there were city lights, this is probably the sky that they were seeing something like this. Of course they were going to be in awe and wonder and all this stuff. And interestingly enough, I saw dots of light moving across the sky in Montana that weren't planes and they weren't meteors. And by doing a little bit of homework, I found out that there were things that humans had put into space. And so that was the next thing. It's like, I need to know more of that. I finished my enlistment. I uh, decided to study aerospace engineering to learn more about this. And this guy, Ron Madler uh, at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in, in Arizona, he's, he's now the, the dean of uh, the College of Engineering there. He made me believe that it was possible that actually, actually I could do something, uh, you know, when it came to space because he, he had his graduate, uh, his graduate program was in space debris. Now I have to admit something. When he told me all about space debris, I found that to be the most unattractive thing I could possibly <laughs> do in space. I'm like, so here's the thing, right? If I'm going to study orbits of stuff, it's not going to be space garbage. I want to do Mars stuff. That's what I want to do. So I'm like, give me a job at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. And interesting, you know, interestingly enough, um, JPL, uh, they have an open house, or they used to, uh, like every May. And I found my, my, my way, I paid my way to go to one of these things. And I talked to people that did interplanetary uh, work at JPL that, that did orbits. And I said, where did you go to school? And they, they, they mentioned three places, University of Texas at Austin, Purdue, and University of Colorado at Boulder. And um, so I knew I had to go to one of those three schools for grad school if I wanted to have uh, a better chance of working at JPL. And of the three, 
uh, Ron Madler at Embry-Riddle got, went to Boulder and uh, I actually was approached by this guy, George Bourne, the late George Bourne at a conference uh, who saw my work and I, I um, you know, this is an, a bit embarrassing, but um, maybe I'll get into this a little bit later if you guys want me to. But uh, I, I publicly humiliated one of his PhD students and I was just an undergrad. And um, uh, yes, so he came up to me later and he said, I've never seen somebody be able to tear apart one of my PhD students the way you did. I want you to be my grad student. And um, I applied okay. to Boulder. I, I, I did poorly on my GREs because I've never been a great test taker. And he said, you know, you're more than just one test. So I want you to come to Boulder and I, I know you can do this, but I want you to prove to yourself that this is meant for you to do. And um, I went to Boulder. I studied under George Bourne. I learned the, the tradecraft of orbit determination and uh, kind of the rest is history. I got, a, I got an offer at, at JPL and I, I became a spacecraft navigator at JPL for Mars missions. Such an awesome story. It's incredible. And, you know, you're, the story of you seeing the Montana sky, it's almost like the, uh, the opposite of the overview effect. Mm -hmm. What would that be called? The, uh, the, the looking up effect? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, <laughs> Absolutely. I, yeah. Uh, so you don't have to go to space to, to, to have this epiphany on where you are in the world and, uh, you know, what it all means and how we're all connected, not in the world, the universe. Uh, yeah, for ages, and, people have been looking yeah. up into space and thinking that question. Yeah. And so it's this, it's this important thing that you, that you talk about more, but which is what we talk about all the time too, is connecting uh, what we do on earth to the orbital environment and uh, highlighting that uh, the orbital environment is just another natural resource. And if we don't protect it, then we're going to, we're going to suffer from that uh, as a, as a society. And so, you know, you, you started to touch there on, on how you got the foray into uh into the space environment and uh, and debris and obviously a big topic nowadays is space traffic management uh and it's uh it's it's a huge conversation so it's a bit hard to focus on one specific aspect but when we look at the the broad area of stm space traffic management what do you what do you see it as i mean how do you define it and what do you think it's going to take for us to have something that we have a global agreement or a global path toward uh, STM uh, that allows for the environment to be protected. Uh, what do we have to do to get there? Yeah, so um, this is where I, I get, I'm going to go back a little bit and say, uh, you know, after this time at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in 2004, I went to an astrodynamics conference on Maui uh, with, with my wife, Cassandra and, and, and Denali was just like a couple years old at that point. And, um, nine days in Wailea, uh, I don't know, Ch Charity can certainly speak to this, but once you go to Maui, you kind of fall in love with the place. And certainly mm -hmm. my family did. And, uh, basically, you know, on the flight back to Pasadena, um, Cassandra was, uh, she was quite unhappy. And, 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 and I looked at her and I said, what's going on? And, and she's like, Maui, Maui is home and you need to, I'm, I'm glad that you, you love NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, find a job on Maui. And so, <laughs> um, and I did, I did. I mean, it took me, it took me a couple years, 
But uh, you know, in two thousand, you know, in two thousand six, I found a way to get employed, uh, you know, on the island, and um, yeah, I, I I I ended up moving moving to Maui with my family, and then that's where I started working for the Air Force Research Lab, and the shift from Mars to Earth happened, and then once I you know once you know the, the U.S. Department of Defense has clearly has assets on orbit, so it cares about you know, indications and warnings of threats and these sorts of things. And um, I'm like, wow, most of the stuff up there is like trash. And I think that coupled with the fact that on Maui, I'm like, okay, I'm in the middle of the Pacific. One would think that small island, you know, big time into ecological sustainability, not so much. A lot, lot of tourist industry, maximizing single-use plastics, landfills. It's like, it made me, it, actually I cried um, the first time I, I drove by like the landfill on Maui. It was like, I can't believe that this is happening. And Native Hawaiians, you know, their way of, of being an ecological balance is like gone pretty much. And this is to the detriment of the environment. And so I think the coupling of that, somehow I tied what was going on in space with what was going on on Maui and the land and the ocean and that sort of stuff. And then I, I, I kind of felt like, oh, wow, near-Earth space is a, an unacknowledged ecosystem along with other ecosystems that the Earth has. Um, and so, so to answer your question... I would say that the first thing that I think needs to happen is near-Earth space needs to be recognized as an ecosystem, as a finite resource. And once it gets recognized as such, the next move is to say it's in need of environmental protection. And then once that happens, then it's like, well, we have sustainability metrics for land, air, and, 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 and oceans. Can we apply any of these like carrying capacity? like a uh, carbon footprint analog uh, to space. And I think it really starts there with these sustainability metrics and thinking about it in terms of like an ecological environmental impact sustainability and space traffic management then kind of, um, you know, grows from there. And, and I, I guess one more thing that I want to say is that, you know, with this kind of, uh, I guess, inner experience or spiritual experience in Alaska, uh, with indigenous people, um, I I basically I, I came to know this thing called traditional ecological knowledge, and it's this this knowledge that certain indigenous people have tenets about how to be custodians and stewards and achieve this ecological harmony. And it's like, wow, if we applied these tenets for space, that would get us uh, to effective sustainability and space traffic management because we would jointly be managing the resource and we would be we would be collaborating and contributing kind of harmoniously to to figure out how to make use of this thing um, so can i ask one one quick thing one quick follow-up charity is uh do you see progress on this like do you see people recognizing this you've, you've been i've been thinking about it since you were in maui uh, do you see some kind of forward motion <laughs> I, I do. And um, I would say in the measure that I can use 
the same sort of terms that environmental protection narratives have with land, air, and, and oceans and use that for space, um, more people can get it and wrap their minds around it and, and have an aha moment because that's what I'm trying to that's what I'm trying to mo motivate is can people have this aha moment like I had to then recognize that this is something that, you know, we can't just know that it's happening. We need to be proactive in trying to do something about it. So, yeah, I think there's forward motion, but it requires uh, not coming up with our own jargon, but looking at what other people uh, use for other ecosystems and, and using the same terminology. I have so many questions now. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do a double as well, Chris. Um, so you talked about carrying capacity, and this is something that's on my brain. What is the carrying capacity of Earth orbit? And is there any danger of first come, first serve going on right now, do you feel? Right. So uh, for sure on the latter and on the former, um, I would say that I think pragmatically speaking, we can understand the carrying capacity as being saturated or exceeded when, you know, our decisions and actions can't prevent, you know, losses, disruptions, or degradations to services and activities above some threshold for some amount of time. And, and very practically speaking, it's like saying, okay, you know, per month, um, let's say 10%, we don't want to tolerate more than 10% of you know, these losses, uh, disruptions or degradations, you know, which orbits, which orbits are such that our decisions can't prevent that at that threshold. And as a community, we need to come together and define what that threshold is and whatever that is, then that'll apply for all these different orbital regimes. And I would say that, uh, my guess is that we're going to find that some orbital regimes probably are already saturated. Um, but, but that, you know, analysis would need to show that. And, and regarding the latter in terms of the first come first served, I think it's, yes, I absolutely think it's kind of this race to the bottom of get as many things up there as possible because physics tells us that two things cannot occupy the same space at the same time or else bad things happen. And, um, even though there aren't deeds for orbital space, I think that practically speaking, there are. If you're up there and operating, then you can easily say, well, you know, it's too dangerous to have other stuff next to me. Uh, that's, that's so true. And you run something called Astriograph at UT Austin. And I'd love for you to explain what this is. Uh, for me, it is, it is really showing the truth from two different or more vantage points because we don't necessarily all go off the same information on what's going on in orbit. Can you explain to us what astrograph is? <laughs> Absolutely. So um, it's an idea that I've had for a very long time, but it was seeded by uh, the U.S.'s uh, Federal Aviation Administration. And basically it's kind of like, um, you know, just like, you know, ways this traffic app is a so-called participatory sensing network where the users of the app get to input information and get to benefit from the collective kind of stuff. The ultimate goal of Astrograph is to be like a participatory sensing network where 
people from around the globe, amateur telescope folks, radar people, whatever, can put uh, their observations in and everybody can get the benefit of saying, oh, yeah, you know, there's a there's a there's there's some there's a, a car that's, you know, abandoned on the side of the highway. Watch out and these sorts of things. Um, the, the interesting thing about it, which I already kind of figure, you know, would happen and uh, I can see evidence of and it's getting to your point is that, look, we we all have our opinions about stuff in space. They're not necessarily all consistent. And each of us that has an opinion, we believe that, hey, you know, uh, this is what I think and I think that I'm right. And when you compare all these things next to each other and see consistencies and inconsistencies, then you can start saying, okay, why do the inconsistencies exist and how do we reconcile these things so that we can come up with, you know, an, an, uh, uh, a fused or kind of this consensus type of answer in understanding, you know, what's up there, what can it do, and I'm going to say developing a body of evidence that can hold people accountable for their behaviors in space. With all of this talk about understanding what's up there, that's the first step. Um, what do you think about removing the debris that's there now? And we're asking this as a loaded question. You know what we did, Astroscaler, focused on active debris removal or end of life. No, I mean, so I, I, I would like an honest assessment because, you know, there's different opinions on this. And so I, I'm curious what you think about uh, that as a viable. Yeah, I'm gonna, I think you're going to like what I have to say. So here's the thing, right? So the first thing I'm going to say, you might not like so much, but what I'm going to say later, you're going to like more. So on the front end, I would say that um, I make some analogies between uh, COVID-19 and, uh, you know, space debris. And in the sense of we want to flatten the curve on the growth of debris and the major culprit, uh, by and large, of the growth of debris are people that are not complying with what science says, right? So, so, so just like with COVID, people aren't masking, they're not social distancing, blah, 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 uh, you know, super spreader events, that sort of thing. You know, similar to, to space, people are not complying with these mitigation guidelines. And if they did that, that would be the, the, the biggest thing people could do to help the, you know, flatten the curve would be to be compliant. So how do we incentivize that? Okay, so that's that's one question, uh, you know, that you didn't ask, but eventually we'll get to, or, or, or maybe it's for a, a round two. Now, the thing I think that you'll like is this. Um, I feel that the way to really open up the business of debris removal is through sustainability. And if we can define this orbital carrying capacity, and if we can define something like a space traffic footprint that we could loosely conceptualize as the burden that any object in space poses on the safety and security of anything else, I think you have, I think you're solid. And what I, and very more specifically, this is what I mean, right? In terms of the space traffic footprint, look, whenever I get in my car and I start it and I, and I put it in reverse, um, I am now a burden to pedestrians and any other driver. Even if they know where I'm at exactly, they have to take my existence into account to keep themselves safe. So objects dead or alive on orbit, even if you knew exactly where, where they are and where they're going to be in perpetuity, 
operators would have to take their existence into account within the, within their plans to keep themselves safe. So it's a burden. So there's no such thing as, you know, uh, zero or negative space traffic footprint. Everything is a burden. That said, once we can actually assign that to objects, then it's very clear that we can say, you know what? Uh, this orbital regime, the it's it's at ninety percent of its capacity. In order to take, you know, provide capacity back, we need to remove some objects. Here, are the top fifty objects in this orbit that are taking up the bulk of the capacity. Let's talk to country X Y Z, who are the the known you know owners or launch states associated with these objects. Give them like sixty, to, you know, uh, six months to remove them, and if they don't. Then we have, you know, just like private citizens can't just go up and remove, uh, you know, a parked car on the side of the road because, you know, that, that's not their property. We hire tow trucks to do that thing. And so I think Astroscale could be the tow truck, right? It's like, oh, okay, these people have been given some time to, to, to remove these objects because just folding their arms and taking up capacity from other countries, every country deserves to be able to utilize space. Most of the stuff up there is, is trash. It's not serving any purpose, which means that most of the capacity, 96%. So here's a fact, right? Without, without even, even computing what capacity is, 96% of orbital capacity is taken up by trash. That's a fact. Now the question is who owns it? What are they going to do about it? And if they're not, we need to find a way to give capacity back because other people deserve to use it for whatever you know peaceful purposes they have. And I think that's where you shine. Wow, that's great. We love it. I want to put that on our website. <laughs> yep. Good. We bring, we bring capacity. That's right. To new operators. That's what that's we right. do. I like that. I like that. Um, Mariba, I'd love to do a little thought experiment with you of going back to that time when you're in military school and, you know, looking up at the stars. I'm sure your boots were like perfectly shined, by the way. Um, I have a story I, about that, Charity. <laughs> Shiny boots? <laughs> I'm sure you do. Do you do. do you have clickers, by the way? Uh, do you know what those are? I the, do. The, what, you do? I kept mine too. Um, good times. Maybe someday I'll put them back on. Um, there you go. But what would you go back and tell that Mariba about your legacy? Like, what do you want to accomplish in space sustainability? And what is your legacy here? This is, um, this is, this is a question that you've, you've, you've hit me with this. And I feel very emotionally moved by this. Um, I would tell myself back then, you know, when I was 16 years old, I, in, in, a, in a Venezuelan military school and boarding school, to be honest with you, I, I didn't want to live anymore. I, I, at 16, I went through some life experiences. I'm like, I'm done. I don't need to be here. There's no purpose that I can serve. I, I, I had a lot of suicidal ideation and um, I would hug myself and tell myself then it's like, <laughs> hang in there, brother. There, 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 there's, there's some good in you. And, um, I've gone through a lot of pain in my life, Charity. And, um, I think the thing that I'd love to do, uh, 
and I talked to I talked to my counselor today about this. So this is very very um, very interesting question. Um, I've told people I want others to be able to learn from my pain. If my pain, if the pain that I've gone through, can be of service to others, that's my goal. I want I want the pain that I've gone through to be useful to other people. Because if it's not, then it, then then it's like in vain kind of thing. So I don't want my pain to be in vain. I want my pain to be of use to other people. Um, and I was telling somebody about legacy and stuff. It's like, look, I don't, I don't even know who the Nobel, who the Nobel Prize winners that passed away this year are. I don't know them, but clearly, they got this prize, and they've because they've made tremendous, uh, significant impacts to society and humanity writ large. So the reason I'm doing this isn't to be remembered because clearly. Even Nobel laureates, maybe they have a, a five-minute thing in, in the news cycles, and then that's kind of done. And clearly, the people that know them love them forever. And and so then it's like, I I want my life to be able to cause an inner shift to people. And if people, as a root of my work, can feel more interconnected and can behave from a place of compassion and that sort of stuff regardless of whether my name is attached to that or not, that would be cool. That's emotional. That's fantastic. Um, and uh, boy, I think it, it impacts all of us. And it, you don't have to, of course, have to have children to recognize this. You just have to see the future generations. But the fact that all, all three of us do and we, we see it every day in ourselves, um, you know, on a, on a personal level, that's what we're all trying to do with our with our kids, right? <laughs> have them learn from our mistakes, have them hang in there through the tough times. Um, but uh, you know, Booyah. but uh, you know, doing this for society is what you're talking about more. But which is, which is, which is incredible. That's a fantastic answer. And so now, as you you've looked back, so Charity had you look back uh, at at yourself and talk to yourself. Um, as you look in the future now. Um, what do you think uh, the space ecosystem is going to look like in, let's say, 20, 35, 15 years from now? What would you like? What would you, well, maybe I should ask two ways. What would you like it to look like? And what do you think it will look like? And unfortunately, those might be two different things. Right. So um, I do see that folks that can do things legally, but not necessarily the right thing, um, end up dictating what things are for others. So, so there isn't a whole lot of change there. So I, I, I think that, um, you know, without, without naming names, there, there are certain people that want to be, right, the interplanetary species, this, that, or the other. And I think that legally, they'll probably find a way to do that. And um, it'll be in the absence of inclusivity. And um, I look at people that are going to settle on Mars and people that will be born on Mars and will never have come to the earth. And, you know, if things don't change, that'll be the next enemy of, hu of humans on earth. Be like, Oh, you know, those, those people with the big heads that look, that have redder skin and are taller because of, you know, difference in gravitational stuff. Right. It's like, instead of celebrating differences, it's like we, we use that to 
be divisive. And um, I see us on that path, but at the same time, what I'd like to see is, um, I guess I see this more in the youth and the students. Um, they're kind of tired and sick of that sort of thing. Uh, they don't, they don't really buy into it. And so this is my grain of hope is seeing students and, and young people saying, this isn't who we're going to be and we're not going to allow this to kind of happen. And, um, I think that, that, that the youth has agency in making this kind of, uh, foundational change. And, um, Here's the thing that's really going to be a, a mind warp. I think that, I think that machines are going to help us understand how interconnected things are. I think that that I think that machines and augmented intelligence and that sort of stuff, because of their capability to analyze hyperdimensional data, will show us that what we what we what we consider differences are really more similarities than anything else and i think that that'll be evidence to start um causing an inner shift to take us away from um you know being so divisive and to being more harmonious and re realizing that look unity is not the the, the we're not going to be the same like trying to drive towards that is nonsensical but harmony harmony is achievable mm. You know, I, for one, am so excited about our future because of the talent and passion I'm seeing in the youth today, um, and in, specifically in the space industry, but outside the space industry as well. Um, you know, I feel our generation and generations before, we've messed things up and, and leaving a bit of a mess to the future, and, and I hope we can learn and we will learn from them, and uh, I'm just seeing greatness uh, going forward. So I'm, I'm with you, Mariba, on that vision, uh, your vision, and uh, expect great things from, from youth from now on. There you go. Well, um, I wish we had more time, and in fact, more, but we need you back for a round two. I want to hear the story about the shiny boots. I want to hear more Good. stories mm. about uh, everything you're working on. So... Uh, We'll close it out here, but uh, let's definitely continue this conversation at a future date. And thank you for uh, your honesty and your, uh, your, your all the work you're doing. Always, my brother. Absolutely. Always. Great. And hope we can see you in person sometime this year, mm -hmm. man. <laughs> Maybe yeah. on Maui? Amos? Anybody? The, well, you know, that, that's, that, that's certainly... Uh, it's in my calendar, and, 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 and I'm, I'm relying on the strategy of hope at this point. <laughs> that's kind of what we can do <laughs> hope and vaccinations there you go yeah <laughs> all right well stay positive and uh look forward to seeing you sometime soon thank you thanks thank Marta. you